If you've got a Bible, open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, over the better part of the last eight months now, we've been working our way through 1 Peter. Took a break um, for Advent, took a break after the first of the year, took a break after Easter. But really, for the better part of these last eight months, we've been chopping up 1 Peter verse by verse and passage by passage. And that's where we return to again today. As we return to 1 Peter today, I want to reset the context a little bit for you and remind you who Peter's writing to and why he's writing to them. Peter's writing to a group of first century Christians whom he calls aliens or strangers. Some of your translations handled those words as sojourners, hence the title of our series. We called it Sojourners. Now a sojourner or, a resident or an alien or a stranger in the ancient world would have been someone who did not belong to a particular country or culture, but they found themselves in that country or culture uh, for a particular span of time. And the same is true for you and I who are in Christ. The Bible speaks of us as resident aliens. It speaks of us as sojourners. It speaks of us as strangers in this world. In other words, whenever the Bible speaks of us as Christians, it speaks of us as individuals who are not citizens of this world, who share all the customs and all the values and all the practices of this world and engage in those nor are we as Christians just tourists who are kind of passing through life, right? taking a few selfies, posting them on Instagram, really just kind of living things up, enjoying the world for what it is, and then passing on through it. So we're not citizens who've embraced and adopted all the practices, customs, and values of this culture, nor are we just tourists passing through it, but we're resident aliens who live in it right now. We interact with it. We interface with people who share values that are very different than our own as they're shaped by Scripture. We contribute to the communities in which we live but yet we are not citizens. We have a green card status here on earth as we await our true home, which the Bible says is in heaven. That's the kind of context into which Peter is writing. As the temperature in his day was getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter for those who had professed faith in Christ. Persecution was beginning to ramp up and becoming much more prevalent and pervasive amongst, uh, within the Roman Empire. And so as he saw that on the horizon, he said, I got to equip and prepare these people to be able to live as faithful followers of Jesus, as God's people, live as God's people amongst these peoples who are surrounding them. And, and last fall, as we started this series, we said, listen, what, what Peter was facing and what the church in the first century was on the threshold of, as Peter writes here, if you look around at the signs that you see around us within our culture, there to a large degree, I believe the church is kind of on that same similar threshold once again. Once again. You see, and, and it's not that the church has ever not been on that threshold, but here's, here's the reality of what's taking place around us right now. See, for, for all, for ever since Peter wrote these words in the first century, following Jesus' ministry and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and the sending forth of the apostles to plant churches and preach the gospel, you had resistance and you had opposition and you had persecution. And there's always been a sense in which if our lives are shaped by this book, then they are out of step with, to some degree, the cultures in which the church has operated across the globe and across every generation. 
So there's always been a sense in which the church is to some degree out of step with the culture in which she lives. But what I think that we're facing right now and what Peter was, the church that he's writing to was entering into in that season was a time in which not only was that just objectively true where you understood, yeah, there are gonna be some things at which we're out of step with those who are around us, but he's, he's writing to a people who are beginning to feel that subjectively. They're beginning to experience that. And that's where I think that we are as the church right now. Where I think that the, the, the church in America and the West is right now. We've always, to some degree, been out of step or should have been out of step with the culture around us, but it's beginning to feel that way more and more and more and more as things unfold around us. It's always been true, but now we're beginning to feel it. Beginning to feel it. And what Peter, as Peter writes, and he comes in this particular text that we find ourselves in today, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, you know, you don't embrace the cultures and values and norms of the culture in which you live, but those are shaped by your heavenly home culture and this book that we've been given, right, that tells us the story of what God is doing through the course of human history. That's where you draw your values from. That's where you draw your customs from. That's where you draw your practices and the norms from for your lives in this world. And there's one area, well, there's many areas, okay, but there's one area in which a, a, a sojourning Christian's life looks so out of step with the culture that's around them there's, there's at least there's, there's one area in this text that we're going to look at this morning that just jumps off of the page at us to say, listen, if your life is being lived as a sojourning resident alien in this world, there's at least this one area in which you're going to be completely out of step with the world in which you live. Like your, your, your life is going to be set in contrast to the world that's around you. And so in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 down through verse 17, we're going to read that text together. And what I want us to see as we read it together is that one area in which our lives are going to stand out from and be out of step with the culture in which we find ourselves as resident aliens here and now. All right? That's where we're headed. So 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, Peter writes these words. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But, he says in verse 15, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In verse 15... Of 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says there is, a, 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 there, there is a, a way in which our lives should be out of step with the culture around us. And, and, and one of the things, Peter says lots of things about that, but in this particular text he says the way in which your life is to be out of step with the culture that is around you is that you have a different, highest, greatest aim for your existence than they do. 
there's a different reason that you are living and getting up every morning than the culture in which you live. Peter says the greatest aim and the great call that God has placed on your life, if you're a sojourning Christian in the room this morning or an earshot of my voice listening to the podcast, if you're a sojourning Christian, the great call that God has placed on your life and the great aim that you should possess in your heart, he says, is to show Jesus to be your treasure. That's the great aim for your life. For those of you who are in Christ, is that you show Jesus to be your treasure. If you look in verse 15, Peter says the great aim of your life, the great call God has placed as a sojourner is to honor Christ. Some of your translations say it this way, to set Christ apart, to sanctify Christ, or even to hallow Christ, if you're using maybe some of the older King James translations. To honor him, to set him apart, to sanctify him, to hallow him. The fact that NIV translates this, this word as set apart, which I take to mean that if you're going to set Christ apart as Lord in your heart, it means this. It means that you're going to uh, put him in a category all to himself. You don't set Jesus apart in the same way that you set apart like a jar on the shelf of your pantry. You don't set Jesus apart in the same way that you set apart a little corner of, of, of your closet off of your kitchen to put your trash can in, okay? You don't set Jesus apart in the same way that you would set any other invaluable possession that you might have on the face of this earth apart for its particular purposes, but you place him in a category all to himself, that he has the highest place, the greatest value. He's the most supreme treasure of your life. He has the greatest admiration. The most, he's the most cherished prize. He's the one that you esteem above and honor beyond and love the most out of all persons and things in this world. He says, if you are to be out of step, living as a sojourning Christian in this life, the great aim and the great call that God's placed on you is to show Jesus to be your treasure by setting him apart. And he, says, that should just be on, he says, that should be on the heart of every Christian. Every sojourning Christian. In fact, that word that's translated honor in the ESV that we just read this morning is the same word that's used in the Lord's Prayer. Remember the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, I'm going to teach you how to pray. When he teaches his disciples how to pray, the very first thing off of Jesus' lips, the very first thing on Jesus' heart when he teaches his disciples to pray is what? Our Father who art in heaven. What? Hallowed be thy name. It's old, old English there. Our Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. The first thing off Jesus' lips, the first thing on Jesus' heart when he teaches his followers to pray is that God the Father would be hallowed, that he would be sanctified, that he would be honored, that he would be set apart, that he would be for the Christian, for the one whose life has been turned upside down by the Holy Spirit and been brought into union with Christ to the glory of God the Father, that the great aim for their lives would be that Jesus and the Father would be honored. They would be set apart. They would be seen as the supreme treasure and as of the greatest worth in and through their lives. It's the first thing on Jesus' heart and the first thing off of Jesus' lips when he teaches us to pray for the honor of his Father.
And here in the text, we're told that the great call on our lives is that Christ would be honored, that Christ would be set apart, that Christ would be hollowed. In other words, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing on your heart when your eyes are opened, the first thing on your heart whenever you get in the shower, the first thing on your heart as you put on clothes, the first thing on your heart as you make coffee, the first thing on your heart, some of you are like, no, that's the first thing on my heart. The first thing on your heart when you get in the car to drop your kids off at school, the first thing on your heart when you open your mouth to speak with your spouse or with your kids or with your parents, the first thing on your heart when you walk into your place of business, or the first thing on your heart when you come back home to tend to all the duties of the household, the first thing on your heart whenever you engage your family, the first thing on your heart when you sit down at the, at the, in, in the cafeteria for school lunch with all of your friends, the first thing on your heart whenever you come home in the afternoons and you do homework or you do chores around the house the first thing on your heart whenever you engage in leisure activities or sport the first thing on your heart whenever you take a vacation the first thing on your heart when you sit down to share a meal and the first thing on your heart whenever you close your eyes and your head hits the pillow and you're out for the day the first thing on your heart is the honoring of Christ's name. If that is the great aim of your life, it will be absolutely out of step, absolutely out of step with the world in which you live. Because Jesus will have a place of prominence in your life like no other. He will be honored in your life like no other. Listen, things that are of great worth and value to us, we set them apart and set them on display, don't we? I, I, we, don't, we don't have any, any dishes like this in our home. Um, our dishes, you know, uh, they're, they're great. Um, but they're not necessarily family heirlooms that have been passed down from generation to generation. Right? So we don't have a big hutch with a cabinet on top of it, right, with glass and light. They're going to kind of shine just at the right angle to make all the, that, that priceless china, right, look like, 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 man, that is just beautiful. But why do people have china cabinets sitting in their dining rooms next to their dining tables? Why? To put those things that are of value to them on display, don't they? They put them on display. They set them apart. They don't put them in the bottom of a Rubbermaid container in the attic. What do they do? They set them on display. See, things that are of value to us, things that are worth infinite, that are infinitely treasured by us, we set them on display, don't we? And what Peter is saying here is that what happens in the life of a Christian whose first concern is the hallowing and the honoring and the setting apart of Christ is that he gets put on display in their lives. He gets put on display in, such a, in the same way that you would display china in a cabinet or an antique gun that you would hang over the fireplace or a classic car that you would position in your garage or family heirlooms that get passed down to you. You set those things on display for everyone who comes into your home or into your garage so that everyone can see it. And that's exactly what Peter is talking about here. That for those 
who are sojourning Christians that Jesus gets put on display in their lives for all the world to see. Because their first, their, their greatest aim and the great call God's placed on them is to show Jesus to be their greatest treasure, to honor him, to honor him. Now notice several of the scriptures that Peter uses in the text. He says that we are to honor him where? He said, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. In your hearts. Now what that doesn't mean is this. Most of us, when we think about doing something in our hearts, we think about doing it invisibly or we think about doing it privately. Right? It's something that we do behind closed doors. It's kind of our own personal little thing between me and God. That's not how the word heart was used in the ancient world, and particularly in the scriptures. The word heart in the Bible doesn't refer to things that you do internally, doesn't refer to things that you do behind closed doors, doesn't refer to things that you do in private. The heart refers to the center of your life. The center of your life. It refers to the seat of all of your emotions. It refers to the seat of all your thoughts. It refers to the seat of all your actions, your passions, your desires, your appetites, your affections, your purposes, and your endeavors. Everything that you think, everything that you feel, and everything that you do. That's what the word heart refers to when it's used in the Bible. And so whenever Peter says, in your hearts... In your hearts, put Jesus on display. He's not saying that you do that behind closed doors. He's saying that you do that in a very public ways because he's the very center of your life. And so he is coming out in all these relationships, in all these actions, in all these thoughts, in all these decisions. He's coming out and being set on display as the greatest treasure of your life. If Christ is honored in your heart, he will be honored by your hands. And if he is not honored by your hands, then he is not being honored in your heart. Do you see that? It's not private, privatized religion, but it's something very public that comes out in the workplace. It's something very public that comes out in the school cafeteria. It's something very public that comes out as you're testing. It's something very public that comes out as you're engaging in relationships in the neighborhood. It's something very public that comes out in all the spheres of, of your life. It's not privatized religion. If Christ is honored in your heart, he will be honored by your hands. And if he's not honored by your hands, he's not being honored in your heart. What this means is this, is that you cannot look in the mirror and go and say to yourself that Christ is being honored in your heart if your private or your public life is set against him in very clear ways. See, some of you think that you're honoring Christ, that you're setting Christ apart as Lord because you show up at church every Sunday or because you are part of a Bible study or because you're a part of the youth gathering on Wednesday nights. That, that, that is maybe a part of carving out time and setting apart Jesus but it is not the full gambit of what it means to honor Christ in your heart. Does it mean, so you can't look in the mirror and go, well, I know I've got all this stuff, right? But I'm honoring Jesus because I come to church, or I'm honoring Jesus because I go to a life group, or I'm honoring Jesus because I go to Bible study, or I'm honoring Jesus because I go to camp and I have this great emotional experience, students. Right? That's, not what it, that's not what Peter's talking about. He's saying, listen, if you're not honoring Christ with your hands, you're not honoring him with your heart. 
Because the center of your life is being rooted and based on something other than him. If the decisions that you're making are constantly in a counter to what he's called you to do. That's what Peter is saying when he says set him apart as Lord in your hearts. If your parts of your private life or parts of your public life are set against him, that is not taking place in your life right now. And that, what that calls for is repentance, owning where that is and turning from it. Notice the second thing that he just says here, the scripture that he uses. He says, honor him not only in your hearts, but honor him as holy. As holy in the text. This means that you honor him as distinct and different, as one who is set apart and set above everything and everyone else in your life, one with whom there is no comparison. And then notice as well, he says, honor him as the Lord. As the Lord. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, honor Jesus, the Savior. Is he a Savior? Absolutely. That's the good news of the gospel that God has done in Christ what you could not do for yourself. But he says, honor him as Lord. In other words, there is no one other. Part of what it means to honor him, set him apart, to show him of great value and worth, is that whenever he gives a command, you bow your knee and you bend your will in obedience. Whenever he prohibits something, right? You don't, in, you don't go there. When he commands something, you do go there. That he's the Lord of your life. That he's the one who calls the shots as the one who is both good and benevolent. So you honor him as Lord. You honor him as holy. And you honor him at the very center and core of your being. And that just bubbles out into every other dynamic and, and relationship and sphere that you enter into. If you're in the room this morning and you claim the name of Christ, this is the great call that God has placed on you. This is, should be the great aim of your life, that you show Jesus to be your treasure. You show him to be your treasure. So when you wake up in the morning, what is the first desire in your heart, thought on your mind, or word on your tongue. When you lie down in the evening, what is the first, last desire in your heart, last thought on your mind, and last word on your tongue? Are you honoring Christ? If not, then your life does not look a whole lot different, is not to a very large degree out of step with what's going on in the culture around you, other than the fact that you come to Highview Learning Center for an hour and 15, sometimes an hour and 25 minutes on Sunday mornings. Are you honoring him as, as Lord? Now some of you in here this morning, some of us, I'll include myself in this, some of us in this room this morning are going, that's great, how do I do that? How do I do that? And let me say it to you this way. The way that you and I do this, the way that we show Jesus to be our treasure is by trafficking in the currency of Christianity. And the currency of Christianity is a well-defended hope. It's a well-defended hope. Listen, every country has a currency, doesn't it? Every country has a currency. And the currency of Christianity is a well-defended hope. 
See, when I said earlier that the great aim of your life, if you are a Christian, is to be one who shows Jesus to be their treasure, for some of you in the room, what the, next, the very next feeling that rose in your heart was a great weight. Because for some of us, we see showing Jesus as our treasure, that he's infinitely more valuable than anything or anyone in our lives. For us, it's like a great burden that weighs us down. And we think of it as labor. We think of it as duty. We think of it as a weight that sucks us beneath the surface of the water and drowns us because we feel absolutely incapable of doing that. And for those of us who were raised perhaps in very legalistic or moralistic environments, the reason that we feel that way, that we can't honor Christ as Lord, that we can't set him apart and show him to be our treasure, is because it's so hard to do that. It's a weight bound around our necks that's going to drown us. But for others in the room, for others in the room, listen, if, if that's you, what you have missed is the very center, core, and heart of the Christian faith. You've missed it completely. Because you think Christianity is about what you do and not at the core about what Christ has done. For those of you who see that at the core, God's been gracious to open your eyes to see it. And at the very heart of Christianity, it's not about what you do, but what Christ has done, what God has done in him. The very next feeling that rises in your heart is not a weight to drag you down, but wings to help you fly. You should mount up on wings as eagles and run and not grow weary and walk and shall not faint. You feel wings and the wind coming, right? That old song just starts playing in the back of your mind, right? Because you recognize, you recognize and you know that at the center of the Christian faith, it's not a weight to drag you under, but wings to help you fly. And the way, the way that those wings sprout and grow stronger and stronger in your life is through a well-defended hope. See, the way Christ is honored in your life is whenever you hope in him and him alone. That's what shows him to be your greatest treasure. That's what shows him to be of infinite worth. That's what sets him on display in your life is that whenever you refuse to hope in anything lesser or other than him and you set your hope in him and him alone. I'm gonna hope in him. I'm gonna expect good from him and him alone. I'm gonna wait for him. I'm gonna wait for him to act. I'm gonna wait for him to vindicate me. I'm gonna wait for him to come through. I have no expectation that anything or anyone other than him is going to bring good to my life. But that he is the source of everything that is good. He is the source of everything that is, 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 is enjoyable. He's the source of everything that I find to be pleasurable. And he is what I cling to in the most painful moments of my life. A well-defended hope See, the way that Christ is honored in your life is whenever you traffic in the currency of Christianity, which is hoping in Christ and Christ alone. So how do you know if you're doing that? Let me give you a couple of ways. First, how do you know if you're hoping in Christ? 
He goes on to say, listen, honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts, always being prepared to give a defense for the reason, for the hope that is in you. There's a hope in you that's honoring Christ, hoping in him, only in him. How do you know if you're hoping only in him? One way you know is to ask yourself this question. In the moments of my greatest pain, what do I cling to? In the moments of the most devastating loss, where do I run? See, Martin Luther, in his shorter catechism, as he writes about the first commandment, he writes about the Ten Commandments, he says the first commandment is the first commandment because whenever you break the first commandment, you are, have already broken or are in the process of breaking all the others. Having another God before God is <laughs> always going to lead you to covet. It's always going to lead you to lie. It's always going to lead you to adultery. It's always going to lead you to all these things that he goes on to list out. And he says what it means, so he goes on to press, he says what it means to have a God. What it means to have a God is this. Have no other gods before me. What does it mean to have a God before him? It means to look to anything or anyone other than the true God as the source of your deepest pleasure and to cling to anything or anyone other than the true God in your most devastating pain. That's what it means to have a God. And I would submit to you this morning, that's what it means to hope in something or someone other than Christ. Is that you believe, I believe, at occasions in my life, that my greatest pleasure is going to come from something or someone other than him. Some of us right now, we believe that our greatest pleasure is going to come from other earthly human relationships whether it be our spouse, whether it be the person that we are dating, whether it be the person that we want to date, whether it be the person, whether it be the person that, that, uh, that, that, that close friendship, whether it be, so we believe it's going to come from other human, earthly people, or we believe that our greatest pleasure is going to come from other human or, or other earthly possessions, things that we could acquire, the house that we are going to build, the house that we are going to remodel, the house that we're going to sell, the house that we're going to move to. And so our hope keeps bouncing back and forth between all these different objects. And as a result, as a result, when people look at our lives, they're not going, tell me about that hope that you have. And so we never really get asked to defend it. Because from, the, from what people see of us is that we're hoping in the same things that they are. In fact, we'll go so far as to say that one of the ways that you know that you're not hoping only in Christ, right? one of the ways you know that is if no one is ever asking you about it. He says, always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that you have. Is anyone even asking you about your hope? If no one's asking you about your hope, then one of two things is more than likely true in your life. Either you're not close enough yet and let people into your life to such a degree that they can see that you're hoping in something different than they are. Or you have let people get close enough and they see that you're hoping in the same things they are. See, the currency of Christianity 
is a well-defended hope. That you're looking to Christ and Christ alone for your greatest pleasure and cling to him and him alone in your greatest pain. And when you do, and when you do, it's like setting Jesus above your fireplace mantle on this big rack and saying, this is my most treasured, valuable possession. It's him. It's a person. And it's honoring to him. It's a well-defended hope. Well-defended. Listen, if somebody comes to you and says, tell me about your hope. Tell me why you hope in Christ, even in the midst of pain. Why you hope in Christ, even though, why, why you say Christ is your greatest treasure, even though you seem to have all these things going for you, right? You've got the house everyone dreams of. You've got the car that everyone dreams of. You've got the spouse that everyone dreams of. You've got the kids that everyone dreams of, right? You've got this kind of white, um, white, white picket fence suburban American version of heaven in your life. Or all that got stripped away from you. And in both instances, why do you say, I'm still hoping in Christ? If somebody comes to you and says, give me a defense, give me a reason, why are you hoping in him? When you seem like you've got everything else this world has to offer, or you seem like you've got nothing else this world has to offer, it seems like you would turn your back on him in either of those instances, because either he has not been good to give those things to you, or these things are so good that you will turn your back on him. Why are you hoping in him? Listen, a well-defended hope is not this. It's not responding to that question by saying, <laughs> you know what, man, my, my parents brought me to church all my life as a kid, and so I, I bring my, kid, my kids to church and all, all my life. You know, I was just kind of raised in that environment. I was raised in the South. I go to church. Everybody goes to church. That's just that's kind of what we do. That response is not honoring to Christ. It is not. What kind of responses would be a well-defended hope? Let me give you several examples of what I think they would look like. Right? Because some of you right now, you're going, man, i got to go read like books now. i got to go like, become a scholar. i got to go buy every apologetics book that's ever been written, and I've got to devour it and memorize all the arguments to have a well-defended hope. That's what i got to go do right now. In fact, i got to check out of here so I can get to the bookstore before everyone else does to buy all those books. I don't think that's what Peter is talking about here. I don't like Peter saying you got to go out and become a scholar. In fact, whenever somebody comes to you and says, tell me about the hope that you have. I hear you talking about Jesus. I see you valuing Jesus above everything else. I see you be willing to liquidate all your possessions and worldly goods for the sake of his gospel. I see you doing those things. Why in the world are you doing that? For you to go, man, hold on. Let me turn to page 161. This book. One second. Look down, find the, There it is, right? And that footnote at the bottom, there, read that. People can smell second-handers coming from a mile away. What they need to see is some first-handers. People who have been with God. People who have walked with him. And God, by his grace, has given them well-defended responses for why they are treasuring Jesus above everything else in this life. And here's what some of those might sound like, what some of those might look like in your response to them. First, your answer might have to do something to do with the trustworthiness or the witnesses who wrote the New Testament. As you're reading through the New Testament, you come across places like the book of Luke, when Luke writes the, his gospel account, the very beginning of the book of Luke. 
He says, listen, listen, Theophilus, writing to his, his friend. Listen, I want you to know that everything that I've compiled here has been done so on the basis of eyewitness reports, accounts, and investigation. I didn't just take it on hearsay. I just didn't take it on speculation. I just didn't take it on mythology or things that were passed down to me. I went around and I interviewed eyewitness after eyewitness. So perhaps for you, it might be the character of the witnesses who are testifying to Jesus in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus, and they've seen Jesus risen from the dead. God might give you a response like that. It's not a very complicated argument with seven layers and footnotes on page 173. Or it might sound like this. It might just be the fact that that, that the person of Christ and the story of the Bible is what gives meaning and sense to history and human life. We spent the last four weeks looking at the big story of the Bible as we worked from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to culmination. We spent four weeks looking at that. Maybe you could say, listen, this makes the, 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 the human history in my life makes sense within this framework. That God created everything good. Everything became bad when sin entered the world. But God has come to redeem and God will one day restore. Life makes sense within that framework. You see how history fits together in those pieces. It makes sense of things. Or it may have to do with the evidence for the resurrection the empty tomb, and the power of changed lives. How these fishermen who post-crucifixion were like, we're cashing everything in, and we're going to go fish again. <laughs> Jesus is dead. Let's go catch some fish because we've got to feed our families. And yet to see them come full circle and, and, and leave their nets and boats a second time to be sent out by Jesus to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It might be the power of the resurrection and changed lives. It might have to do with the fulfillment of prophecies. You read the Old Testament and see all the things that were predicted about this Christ who would come and how Jesus fulfills them to a T. See, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go out and study 17 books, but it means that you dig into this one and you see, you see there was no man who taught like this man. His character, who he was and what he did. Not, yeah, my parents raised me in church, so I'm raising my kids in church, and I hope they'll raise my grandkids in church. That is not a well-defended hope or a response that gives honor to Jesus. So the great aim of your life is to show him to be your treasure. The way you do that is by trafficking in the currency of Christianity, which is a hope in Christ and Christ alone that is well-defended firsthand, as you see it come off the pages of Scripture and you're able to share it with those who ask you about it. To finally notice what its results are, I'll give you two things real quick as we close. The results of, of this honoring of Christ in your life by hoping only in Him. Peter says there'll be at least two results. And the first one is this, is that you gotta see that this honoring and hoping Honoring Christ by hoping in him. It is the antidote to the fear of men. Look at what he says in verse, at the end of verse 14. 
He said that even if we do suffer for the sake of righteousness, in verse 13 he says, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? In other words, the normative pattern is that when you do good, no one's going to rough you up or oppose you. But he says, even whenever that does take place, he says, do not fear them or what they fear. Don't be afraid of them. And listen, this is the, the, this is the natural inclination for every human heart in this room this morning. From the time that you were born until Christ sets you free from it, is that we tend to operate with a fear of men. We're afraid of what other people are going to think about us. We're afraid of what other people are going to say to us. We're afraid of what other people could do to us. And so we allow that fear to dictate how we act. We allow that fear to dictate the things that we say. Will we speak the truth to that person because we know how they're going to respond to us? So we're afraid of how they're going to respond to us so we don't speak the truth. Because if we speak the truth and we do what is good, we will bring suffering upon ourselves for doing so. But do you see... Do you see that if you have set apart Christ as your greatest treasure, and that the great aim of your life is to show him to be so, that that and that alone is the inoculation, the vaccination, the antidote for the fear of men in your life. Because you're no longer afraid of what they will say, no longer afraid of what they will do, because that's not the greatest aim of your life anymore is to maintain kind of a, a, a sense of harmony, of a false sense of harmony and peace in your relationships. But the greatest aim of your life now is to honor Christ. And if honoring Christ means speaking the truth and love to someone, no matter how they're going to respond to it, then you lean into that conversation because you're honoring Christ more than you're fearing men. More than you're fearing what they can do to you or what they will say to you or how they will respond to you. Some of us in this room, and I've been there, I've been there, where what grips your heart every morning when you wake up is not an honoring of Jesus, but what grips your heart every morning when you wake up and when you drive into your office and whenever you bring your kids to school and when you come home and have to have the hard conversations with them and whenever you walk into the school cafeteria or you walk into your classrooms, what grips your heart is not an honoring of Christ, but it's a fearing of men. Because you're hoping Listen, you see how this works together? Because you're hoping that they would bring you the greatest pleasure. You're hoping that you could cling to them in your deepest pain. Honoring Christ is the antidote to the fear of man. But notice finally as well, it's also the accelerant. It's also the accelerant in your life. Not just an antidote, but it's also the accelerant for the flames of obedience. You know what accelerant is? All right, some of you are like pyros in the room. You know exactly, that's why you live out in the country, to blow stuff up and burn stuff, right? That might be the competing hope of your heart with Jesus. So you know exactly what an accelerant is. It's something that causes flames to combust and grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And the honoring of Christ is an accelerant for the flames of obedience in your life. Notice what he says in verse 13. 
Peter speaks of a zealousness for doing good. A zealousness for doing good. Where does that zeal come from? It comes from the accelerant of honoring Christ in your life. Setting him apart as unique and distinct and of ultimate value. And it produces these flames in your heart of obedience that are going to cause you to lean into obeying Jesus no matter how hard things get. No matter how difficult things are. Because you're not fearing men and what they can do, say, or think about you, but you're honoring Jesus. And so you're going to obey him as opposed to allowing their opinions and thoughts to cripple you and paralyze you from stepping forward in obedience. it, It causes flames to rise in your heart and a zeal to grow for doing good. Even, even if you're going to suffer for it. Even if you're going to suffer for it. So the great aim of your life is to honor Christ by hoping in him. By having a well-grounded and defended hope in him. And when you do, it sets you free from everyone else's opinions, thoughts, about who you are and what you're doing because you know you're living to honor him not in fear of them and there's a zealousness that grows in your heart for obedience to Jesus because you want to show him forth and put him on display is that the great aim of your life this morning When you wake up in the morning, do you wake up to honor him or do you wake up to fear them? My desire for you, and listen, I'll hold the mirror up in my face and say my desire for myself is that we would live lives that honor Jesus. And as a result, our lives would look out of step with the culture that is around us, no matter the cost no matter the cost. Let's pray together. Father, we come today thanking you for your grace and goodness. Father, we recognize that life in this world as those who have been called to follow you, those that you have brought from death to life, those that you have been gracious to save, life in this world is painful and involves suffering And God, not just suffering for doing evil. Many of us in this room are well acquainted with that. But suffering for doing good. Not that we go out and chase it, Father, but ultimately whenever we are zealous for good, it comes in our lives. It shows up. We find it on our doorstep. We find it knocking on the door and actually breaching the home at times. Father, would you grant us as your people the grace to honor you, to show you to be our treasure above all things by hoping in you and you alone. As we sing this morning as the service closes, Father, I pray I pray that you would take the words that have been proclaimed and, Father, that you would sift out anything that is of me And whatever is of you, that it would land 
and that those seeds would penetrate the hearts of your people and they would germinate and they would sprout forth and they would bear fruit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.